Before we get started with this episode of Walking with Dante, let me just say that this podcast has gone on for three years, more than three years. In fact, you may be back toward the beginning of our Walk with Dante. I never intended this podcast to overtake my life, but it has. I'd like to ask for a little help. I have a great deal of costs associated with this podcast, including fees to join scholarly journals to get library access, including hosting fees, streaming fees. I have to buy the copyrights to the music, the sound effects, and I have to put the thing up and let it live somewhere. So I have to pay for those services too. All of that has eaten into the budget, and I have turned down sponsors in favor of asking for your help. So before we get started, let me just tell you that there is a PayPal link both in the show player itself and in the notes to this podcast. If you would like to donate to this podcast and support it, that would be terrific. I'd say a dollar, a euro, a Canadian dollar per episode. That'd be fantastic. Half a dollar, 50 cents. Um, you know, half a quid uh, for an episode. That's also pretty fantastic, too, if you have enjoyed the journey. Even if you don't, I'm still going to continue on this passion project. I'm simply asking for a little help for something that I had no intention of overwhelming my life onto the episode. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has slow walked. Can you hear the smile on my voice? Has slow walked through Dante's Inferno. We are now moving on to Purgatorio. Can you believe we got here? We got to the very shores of the great mountain of purgation. It's hard to even fathom how that happened, but we're here. In this episode of the podcast, I'm not going to actually do a passage from Purgatorio. Instead, what I want to do is I'm going to set up the methodology for how we're going to approach Purgatorio. I'm going to talk through how it's going to go down because it's going to be different from how we did Inferno. And I also want to raise some initial interpretive structures. In other words, I want to play my hand. I want to tell you exactly how I see Purgatorio so that you go into Purgatorio kind of knowing where I'm headed and knowing that there are lots of other ways to approach Purgatorio. I have five different rubrics in which I read Purgatorio, but let me say that there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of rubrics in which you can read this next part of the poem, the next third of comedy. So let's get started. First, the methodology. You know, when we did Inferno, we did it in chunks. We did 12 lines, 15 lines, sometimes 8 lines, 9 lines. Other times we did larger chunks, 51 lines. We, we kind of broke it up into pieces and we just slow walked through it. And part of the reason we could do that is because the plot of Inferno drives itself forward. And because the plot drives itself forward, I didn't really worry about your knowing exactly where we were headed at any given moment. Purgatorio 
is much more discursive. The conversations are longer. Certain of the souls purgating themselves speak much, much longer monologues. Virgil speaks a fairly long monologue at one point and elsewhere speaks at more length than he often does in Inferno. Given all of that, we're going to break Purgatorio up into chunks. These chunks are going to help us get through what happens in Purgatorio. It's it's not as easy as the pits and the pouches of Inferno, as you'll see. There's not one sin per canto being purgated on the mountain. We're not even going to get to the gate of Purgatory until the ninth canto. So way down the road, nine out of 33 cantos. We are way into this thing before we even hit the gate. Here's how it's going to work. I'm going to do a read through of the chunk. I'll announce the chunk with the start of that section. And then I'm just going to read through the whole thing in my translation from the Florentine. And at the end of reading through that whole chunk, I'm going to ask some basic and pertinent questions about what we just went over without answering them. Then I'm going to turn back and break it down into the smaller bits we're used to from Inferno. We're going to look at this thing kind of as a whole, a whole, and then pieces. This is part of what Purgatorio forces us into. By the time we finish that chunk of Purgatorio. I'll go back and read the whole things, which means there may be some gaps in dropped episodes. Uh, let me just say that drop, meaning I drop them on the podcast platforms. There may be some gaps because we may get to a chunk and I may need a little breath a week or so to kind of catch my breath before we get to the next chunk or to get ready for the next chunk. So it may not be quite as seamless as Inferno was. I'm going to try to make it as seamless as I can. But after all, I have another life, as you probably know. I have a very active publishing life in cookbooks. And so I may need a few breaks inside of these chunks. This is all just to explain to you how the methodology of the podcast will now run. Now, let me say one more thing. In Inferno, I did a lot of funny voices, and they were difficult. Virgil kind of got established. You remember Virgil, of course. Virgil kind of got established as a voice inside of Inferno. And the other characters either were my weird attempt to build a voice for a character, or I used programs to alter my voice, to create alternate voices. In Purgatory, I'm not going to do that. The speeches are too lengthy for me to develop a separate voice for each of the characters. And here's the real problem, and this is what stops me from the voices. By the time we get to the end of Purgatorio, we're going to reach Beatrice, Beatrice. And by the time we reach Beatrice, I just don't want to voice her. I thought about it a long time in the break between Inferno and Purgatorio. I believe it or not, I imagined her as a southern belle, as if she's going to talk like a southern belle. And I thought, this is just absurd. I can't do this. I can't make Beatrice be this way. So. The funny voices are out, and that means that the translation has to change in a little bit. And let me explain this to you because it's important. What I'm going to have to do is put more cues into the translation. I'm going to have to say, Virgil said, Dante said. I'm going to have to add 
cues into the translation that are not there in the medieval Florentine. If you go to my website, markscarborough.com, and you look at the passages there, you'll see that what I've inserted to cue who's speaking at any given moment, are in, it's in brackets. The material is bracketed. That means I've added it. It's not in Dante's text. I've added it so that we're clear who's speaking at any given moment inside of the podcast. Okay, now let's move on to the five general rubrics, the five general schematics I use when I think about Purgatorio. The first one is pretty standard, and that is that Purgatorio is about the perfection of the will and the correction of the intellect. Now, let me explain this just a little bit. In kind of very standard criticism, Inferno is about the corruption and correction of the will, how the will is corrupted and people end up damned. And along the way, the correction of the pilgrim Dante's will. If you remember, we talked about this endlessly, that Dante the pilgrim may in fact partake in some of the sins or maybe even all of the sins of Inferno in different ways at different points during the poem. Basically, Basically, while those people in hell are solidified in their errors, the pilgrim may be being corrected out of those errors, which are all fundamentally choices of the will, are all volitional states of action. When we move to Purgatorio, this changes slightly. What we're going to come to is the perfection of the will. How does the will become perfect and how does it become such that it desires that which is good the imagery that is going to be used is actually highly uh what am i going to say dependent on arabic treatises and it's about falconry and the question is how can you get the falcon to the point that when you unhood it when you take the blinders off the falcon it then obeys the command that's the perfection of the will we'll talk much more about this this will come up in the central cantos of it purgatorio this falconry imagery it'll be tied to the imagination and falconry and falconry is particularly in Dante's day known as one of the arts coming up out of Arabic learning. So we'll explore all of that when we get to the proper points. But nonetheless, Purgatorio is about the perfection of the will and, this is important, the correction of the intellect. Things are going to get set right in Purgatorio, not in terms of how you will yourself, what you desire, but what you think, how you understand the world, how the pilgrim ultimately understands the world. If Inferno is about the corruption and correction of the will, Purgatorio is about the perfection of the will and the correction of the intellect. And then, this is down the road, Paradiso is about the perfection of the intellect. Okay, a second schema or a second paradigm or a second way that I look at Purgatorio. Purgatorio is moving away from the classical world and toward the medieval, I'm going to put that in brackets, medieval, Christian world. The movement is 
I believe, away from a lot of classical imagery and more and more toward traditional or biblical Christian imagery. We move from a heavily Ovidian, Virgilian, Lucanian, is that a word, Lucanian? Sure, Lucan, Lucanian context, and we move much more into a biblical and scholastic context, and even more so, part of medieval art. We get whole huge theories of medieval art, which you know is mostly based on the sacred. All of this happens in Purgatorio. But let me just say this, and this is part of a subset of the way I read Purgatorio, that move from the classical world to the biblical world is not smooth. There is actually a tearing, and we're going to see the tears. There's actually a ripping, a tearing, a breaking from a classical imagistic system that is imagery, uh, ideas, imagination, metaphors, similes, concepts derived from Virgil, Luke, and Ovid, and others. We're going to see See that tearing away from that and toward the Christian world. But we know that Dante loves his classical learning. So that move would not be smooth for our poet under any circumstances. And I don't think it is smooth. There are lots of tears. These tears will lead us to some strangely heterodox or even, dare we say it, heretical positions. That's all ahead of us in Purgatorio. Okay, a third way that I look at Purgatorio. Purgatorio is the most heterodox portion of the poem. Heterodox, the opposite of orthodox. The most heterodox portion of the poem. We've run into some theological and moral problems in Inferno. For example, the seven deadly sins, which we start down in the rings of hell, and then those evaporate. Is that a good word? (laughs) Evaporate into heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. The thieves are not their created selves. There's a little bit of possible heresy running under that. If God creates the soul as part Part of the body and the soul and the body are a unity, which is the orthodox stance, and that the soul yearns for the body when it is bodiless in the afterlife, as we will discover in Dante's poem, then that the thieves change souls and bodies so quickly, it's verging a little bit on heterodoxy there, or that Satan is locked at the center of the earth and not able to tempt humans verging toward heterodox ideas all over the place, even heretical ideas. But Purgatorio will explore the implications of these and other heterodox stances. It breaks the poem in fundamental ways. There are ways in which Purgatorio breaks comedy. For example, this is an easy one, but for example, part of Purgatorio will be written not in Florentine, but in Provençal. It's important for us to see the ways that Purgatorio steps over the fence that Dante thought he was creating in Inferno. When it steps over that fence, it doesn't tend to step over it toward orthodoxy. It tends to step over it 
toward heterodox and even a bit dangerous ideas. Wait till we get to the point where Dante essentially eschews original sin. These are all the ways that Dante is actively involved in moving the fence in Purgatorio, and maybe not just stepping over it, but moving it. This is why Purgatorio is the most heterodox portion of the poem. It is the place where Dante truly moves the fence because of his developing notion of love. Essentially, this is too easy to say, but let me say it. Essentially, Inferno is narrative development. Purgatorio is the heterodox positions that arise from non-propositional narrative theology. We'll talk so much more about that in the episodes ahead. And Paradiso is reassurance. (laughs) Inferno is developing the story of the afterlife. Purgatorio is exploring the ways in which that narrative understanding of the afterlife has broken the orthodox theology in various ways. And Paradiso is the reassurance that, hey, I'm not really a heretic. I really am the ultimate Christian poet. Much, much more of that ahead in the episodes as we break the cantos apart. A fourth way that I look at Purgatorio is Purgatorio is meta-commentary. Purgatorio answers the question, how did I come to write Inferno? Now, I know this sounds odd, but Inferno is overwhelming in many, many ways. And Purgatorio functions for me as a commentary on the process of writing Inferno. It's a treatise on how I came to write this overwhelming, jarring, and very visceral piece of the poem called Inferno, which means it's a fuller explanation of the theology Dante intentionally or even unintentionally developed, I'm smiling, unintentionally developed in Inferno. It's an explanation of how I got here and what does it mean that I got here. We'll talk way more about that in the episodes ahead. And finally, the last rubric, schematic, whatever you want to call it, the kind of um, (laughs) lens through which I see Purgatorio. Purgatorio recapitulates or restates or reimagines, we can use those different words, they have slightly different emphases, but recapitulates, restates, or reimagines the New Testament in its structure. If you're not familiar with this, let me explain it to you. The New Testament is essentially set up on three Parts. There are three essential divisions when we look at the New Testament. There are the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. These are the narratives of the life of Jesus, four of them. And then what happens after Jesus' death, the Acts of the Apostles, which are the first decades of the church, the coming of St. Paul, all this kind of stuff, this narrative bit. And it's the first five books of the New Testament. The 
New Testament then moves from that to a series of epistles or letters, mostly from St. Paul, but from others as well. And some of the St. Paul letters, not even from St. Paul, perhaps, some having been interpolated in his name into the text. But that's a bigger question than we need to worry about in this podcast. Basically, there's a set of letters, and they're all very theological and practical. They're trying to set various churches or various correspondents correct in their theology or correct in their moral behavior. Some of the letters, let's say Paul's letter to the Roman church, is very theological. Some of the letters, let's say Paul's letter to the Philippian church is less theological. It is theological. It's less theological and more practical. Behave this way. You're not behaving right. Do this right. So we have the gospels. We have narratives. Then we have all this theological and moral instruction. And then we end with what Catholics call the apocalypse of St. John or Protestants call revelations. This big apocalyptic ending. Purgatorio is going to do this for us. Before we get to the gate of Purgatorio, the first nine cantos of Purgatorio are, for me, replicating the gospel. They are the good news. And there's all kinds of good news that's going to happen in the first nine cantos of Purgatorio. When we get through the gate of Purgatorio and into the mountain proper, into the proper places where the souls are purgating themselves, we hit essentially the epistles of the New Testament. We hit the theological and moral issues that various sins cause. We hit the behavioral issues that people have to face in their own lives. We hit all of the stuff that is indicative of all of those letters in the New Testament, and we're going to end Purgatorio with a giant apocalyptic vision. Giant. We'll take many cantos to get through. Very reminiscent of the apocalypse of St. John or the book of Revelations. Again, I see Purgatorio as essentially structured like the New Testament. <laughs> Let me say, when I was a kid, I grew up, you may know this already from the Inferno podcast, I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian church, fundamentalist Protestant Christian church. Uh, my training was there. This is, I went to a fundamentalist Protestant seminary. This is where I learned Greek and Hebrew. I'm very much out of the fundamentalist Protestant tradition. But I remember once in one of the oh, two-hour-long sermons, this fundamentalist minister would preach at our church on Sunday mornings. One of the things he said, and it's always stuck with me, even as I've moved away from religion, he said that the two most fundamental questions of heaven when you get there are, what are you doing here and where's so-and-so? What he meant by that is that the people who are there are not necessarily who you think are going to be there. And the people you would bet your life on that they're going to end up in heaven, they may not be there. They may not actually get there for various reasons. Maybe their conversion wasn't true, or maybe they were just doing it for show, or you know, blah, 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 blah. There's lots of reasons. But the point is, you're going to be shocked at who's in heaven, and you're also going to wonder, wait, where's so-and-so? Where, where are they, and how come they're not? here. Essentially, these are the opening cantos of Purgatorio. We're going to meet some people who you say, wait, how, how'd you get here? How'd you get on the mountain on the way to heaven? And let me break right here and say, this is very important to remember, in Purgatorio, from now on out, everyone we meet is redeemed. I know it's 
easy to think of Dante as the poet of the damned. And, you know, people focus on Inferno, they read Inferno, perhaps in a freshman lit class, uh, maybe it's part of the great, quote-unquote, great books curriculum that someone's taken, and they read Inferno, and they don't read any further in the poem than that, and so they think, oh, Dante, he's the poet of the damned. No, Dante is the poet of the redeemed. Two-thirds of comedy take place among the redeemed, and everyone from this moment on out is redeemed. <laughs> we got 66 cantos ahead of us through Purgatorio and Paradiso. They're all about the redeemed. The damned are the prelude to what we're about to hit, and what we're about to hit is a bunch of people that we're going to say, Oh, what are you? What in the world are you doing here? And that, and let me just try this back to my idea about Purgatorio and the New Testament. That's the good news. The good news is that the redeemed are unexpected. The people who get here aren't necessarily the people you think would get here. In fact, there are people here you definitely wouldn't think would be here. And that will then be the good news, the gospel like bits of the opening nine cantos. So there's the whole schematic. There's my cards on the table. I played all my trumps. That's really bad, right? If we were playing bridge, I, I just I just lost all my trumps on the first episode out of Purgatorio. But okay, I bet you over the course of the poem, I'm going to change my mind because I'm in development and process as well as the poem. Remember, Dante is writing the poem. We are reading a poem in process, and I too am in process as I work through the poem. So I've laid my current cards on the table. I bet I'll get more as we go forward. Up next in the next episode of the podcast, the first chunk of Purgatorio in my English translation and the basic questions of interpretation that it first seems to ask us before we break it down into its many parts. Please subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it, do all those things. I'm really glad we're back walking together. I missed you. I missed this. I missed doing this so much. It was lovely to have a breather. I really took a lot of long, deep breaths and long walks with my colleagues down very rural New England roads, but I'm glad we're back doing this together. Up next, the first chunk of Purgatorio. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you very soon. <laughs>